Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up in this episode hints that vitamin C might reduce the severity of infections, but it's not particularly strong evidence. I'm just thinking about all the moose that are cruising around Canada without any antlers. Specific designer supplements don't even contain what they can report to contain. Because supplements are not regulated at all by any oversight body. So do you love the Real Science of Sport podcast? Well, you can support us on Patreon. The link to our Patreon account is in the bottom of all of our podcast notes. And it's an opportunity to not only to get special podcasts from us before anybody else does, but also a chance to support us and be part of this passion that we live and do quite freely whether we have money or not. Yeah, uh, you can come in at one of three different levels on Patreon. You can be an Olympic athlete, an Olympic champion, or you can enter the rarefied air of an Olympic legend. Uh, and as Mike says, this is our passion project. We're going to keep going because we love this maybe more than our real jobs. But your support is always welcome. And we love the feedback. We love the engagement. And of course, we would love any donations that you think us worthy of. So please join the community and let's keep the conversation going. So check it out on uh, www.patreon.com and look up for the Science of Sport podcast and all the details are on there. Well, it's been uh, a very interesting last six months uh, for us at the Science of Sport podcast. And uh, I think the last time that we, uh, the first time we spoke during lockdown, I think Ross uh, said that I think this lockdown might go on to June. And now we're at the uh, almost at the end of August going into um, uh, September. And uh, I think we are, we're far a long way away from uh, anything getting back to normal as we, uh, as we knew it back then. And I think it's been an interesting journey because we made a decision here at the Science of Sport podcast that we weren't going to fixate on, fixate on COVID. We did a couple of um, uh, podcasts around. And I think the most interesting one was the, the one where we talked about how sport is getting back into action. And in this last weekend, uh, just before we came onto our podcast today, we've been talking a little bit about how the, uh, the Criterion de Dauphiné, uh, which is happening at the moment, the sort of the third of the big races um, after Milan San Remo and uh, Strada Bianchi um, kind of is the first sign that there's some sort of sense of normality around sport around the world. But there's also that sense, I guess, Ross Tucker, that just one positive case in that peloton um, during you know this event or the Tour de France at some stage um, could basically scupper any future live sport, isn't it? Exactly, like the same thing in New Zealand where they got almost through their rugby competition and then Auckland had a little community outbreak. And I just read this morning, that the last round of matches in that rugby tournament has now been, well, the one match in Auckland has been cancelled. So there is this ever-present axe hanging over their yeah. heads. And, um, you know, the cycling now continues with the Tour de France. Hopefully they can get to the finish of that thing. Um, but at the same time, you're seeing like the backdrop is there's this resurgence in cases in Europe. Spain's recording increased yeah. growth. France, 
Uh, I saw this morning that the Netherlands is going up. Uh, we know that Eastern Europe's going up. So, yeah, all eyes on these races. Yeah. I mean, at some point, an athlete is going to fail the test. And then the question is, do they cause secondary infections? Do yeah. you get clusters? Because if they don't do that, then it's not that bad. So I, I don't know. I mean, they, that person is isolated quickly and is not a threat to the general group right. should, should be able to continue. Because I guess when this thing started, and I remember here in our offices here in Cape Town, um, when we first came back into the office, the people that run the offices here came in and did a deep clean of our offices, which which looking back at it was seemed like the fair thing to do. But actually now we know it's probably a bit of overkill. But, you know, I guess shutting down everything because of one positive case doesn't seem to be the norm. It's about isolating and, and being prudent about how you shut down something because of COVID. Yeah, although the precautionary principle is making people super vigilant and then I think more likely to overreact. And yeah. I, I can sort of understand that because the last thing you want is one guy infecting three, three becomes nine, nine becomes 27, and then a quarter of the race, next thing you know, is infected, plus the community through which the race traveled. And now you get these little traveling clusters linked to a sports event, yeah. which would not have a good look and obviously is not good on a human level. So... Hopefully that doesn't happen. I mean, they got through European football seasons uh, yep. without that happening. So I'm optimistic that the fact that it's outdoor in these young, healthy people will keep the the risk of these transmission and clusters to a minimum. So I hope I hope we can get through that because all signs are that by the time Europe head, heads into its fall and winter months, the cases might well be back where they were at the beginning wow. of the of the thing, and then we're in lockdown phase two there. Meanwhile, here in the south, we might be coming out of ours, but it's this it's this anxiety roller coaster where everyone's yeah. just waiting for the next bad thing, and that's how we've become conditioned. It sucks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess we could talk about COVID uh, for an entire podcast uh, because there's there is so much to talk about it. But I think you know, if you just read up about what's happening in the world of sport, it's it's a very interesting place in terms of how sports are dealing with it and uh, getting and making sure sport happens. I mean, European soccer has been very much a, a great example of how they've made a plan. Um, we're seeing Test cricket happening as well around the world, and it's it's obviously very sad not to see the crowds um, in, at the sporting events. But you know, in cycling, we are seeing crowds along the roads. Sometimes it kind of makes me a bit uncomfortable when we're watching um, Strada Bianchi and you've got Vart van Aert going up a climb and there's 10 guys screaming at him without masks on. You kind of feel like, does Vart van Aert think, please don't be close to me? You know, it's, it's, it's an anxiety that you, you're not in the race, but you feel it yourself just yeah, watching. I, just on that, I think we should be encouraging outdoor activity as much as possible. Yeah. I think anything you can do outdoors, you must. I think sports outdoors has got an incredibly low risk compared to indoors. The problem for cycling is you've got even though they're outdoors, there's 150, 160 guys in a relatively compact group yeah. rebreathing the same air. I mean, if you're if you're in the middle of the pack, you're breathing the air that was exhaled by the guy at the front of the pack, mm. and you're doing that for potentially three, four hours, that's where there's this drafting-related risk. But I don't know how large it's going to be, and that's why yeah. this is almost like a great big experiment, the Dauphiné, the Tour. Um, so we'll, we'll know by the end of October. Yeah. And that, it'll be useful to know. Actually. So, just to, this is a nice segue into the next part of our conversation. And uh, I know Ross, you've been getting involved, and one of the benefits of uh, of the lockdown is that you've really taken to the cycling. I know you and I have been on a couple of rides, but you've been smashing out ten hours a week on the bike. I, I, I actually wrote my editor's letter in Bicycling Magazine here in South Africa about you this month. And <laughs> what was interesting is that I I got to a place in my cycling where 
I was almost avoiding the numbers. I didn't want to see what my heart rate was or how I was, but then I got the indoor trainer. I started to use my heart rate monitor more often. And, and because of you looking at all those numbers, I become sort of quite sort of excited about those numbers and actually become a bit of a student of my own numbers um, as a result of that. And I, and I think I do thank you for that because in a way those numbers are almost slightly motivating. You can, you know, you can look at them ride to ride. We, we generally ride the same course every week, but it, it's allowing us to kind of create our own little performance sort of training plan based on our very loose arrangements <laughs> around training. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a value add. When you look at the numbers, I, that, mm. that's what attracted me to the sport in the first place, running and cycling, because they're so yeah. measurable. There is a danger, and I'm aware of this. I was thinking about it myself the other day, that if you were to get, say, injured or sick for a few weeks, yeah. and then you get back on the bike, then those numbers become a demotivating force. Because yeah. now you say, oh, I'm actually two minutes slower on a normal <laughs> route than I used to be, and I feel so much worse. And all of a sudden, what was a positive stimulus becomes an aversive one. And then you're going to have to change your mindset. And I've thought about that for myself because at the moment, so I, I got a mountain bike a couple of weeks back and I've never yeah. really been a mountain biker. I, I preferred Jeez, the road. Could have fooled me, man. And now and now I'm into that that vibe and it's, it's new and it's still stimulating. But at some point, I know I'm going to have to cross a bridge of actually I don't want to know these numbers anymore and then I'm interested to see how I respond to that it's interesting because we do a course here in Cape Town which is a fairly innocuous in terms of technical um, skills uh, ride through the green belts and uh, there's sections where you have to go through sort of walkers and dog walkers and families we have to be going quite slowly but there are sections that we kind of target and i know that eventually we won't be able to go much faster unless we start risking life and limb <laughs> and going over the bars but it, it is it is fun and we look after each of the each of those rides we download that offer our, our garments or our polars and they're onto strava and we see what we did and do you think you're i mean i know we're not even not even talking about this today but do you think you're slightly obsessed with it at the moment would you describe it as obsessed? Yeah, but only because I'm still on the growth phase. Yeah. So I know, I know that like those segments, and there are about six or seven that we we alternate targeting on our rides. Yeah. M3 I'm, to Takai. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> the one. And I know that I've got ten seconds in me today to, yeah. to improve on. And then yeah. the next time it might be six seconds. But I'm increasingly getting I'm getting closer and closer to diminishing returns. Yeah. But for now, I'm obsessed with it because it's actually I know I'll be successful and nothing mm. breeds success like success. So yeah. for now, all good. But as I said, at <laughs> there some will, point... There will, become a there will be a plateau. At some point, and then I might get actually demotivated. And then what yeah. we'll have to do is find new routes. Yeah. 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 Or, or you get a road bike. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah completely new, new terrain. That's the next thing. Yeah. Anyway, we're not talking about uh, that today, and that is a topic for another uh, podcast, I think, about how we use things to motivate ourselves. We are talking today about supplements, and this is an area of sport which, uh, for me as an editor of a running and cycling publication here in South Africa, is a very difficult one. Um, and I'll tell you why, because we get a lot of PR companies sending us supplements, you know, everything from the days of the creatine phase in, in the sort of early 2000s, right through to what we have now, everything comes with some sort of additional thing in it, whether it's chocolate milk or whatever it is, there's all sorts of vitamins, I literally have drawers of these things that get sent to us every single year. And my policy has always been, and I've always said this to the PR people, we don't review supplements. And the reason why we don't review supplements is because I cannot trust that what they say is true, and we have no way of really testing 
what we say is true. So what we're going to be talking about today and, and really kind of digging quite deep here with Ross is to talk about whether supplements work and whether some supplements work or whether none of them work. But let's let's first of all try and define what we mean as a supplement. Yeah. So I think we can draw on your piece of paper, you can draw two lines, one on the far left, one on the far right. To the left of the left line is everything you eat and drink in food, food, food. You know, in other yeah. words, the stuff you make, it grows on trees or it's or it's alive and then it's, it's, it's killed it's, for It's food. breakfast, lunch and dinner. Correct. Yeah. And snacks. Right. That's to the left of your one line. And then to the right of the other line are medical products that are available through prescription only. Testosterone, growth hormone, insulin, insulin growth factor, etc. Everything between those two lines would be a supplement. That's okay, right. but now that's that's broad, but that's my starting proposal. So I'll put that on the table yeah. and say that everything in between that does not consist of diet or medical products would be considered a supplement. So that would encompass carbohydrate replacement drinks, Powerade, yeah. Gatorade, etc. It would recover protein shakes, powders. It would cover the creatines, like you mentioned. It covers fat burners, which contain all manner of herbal and other central nervous system stimulant products and ingredients. It covers caffeine. It covers nitrites, nitrates, sorry, uh, cholesterol, everything. So when you walk into a vitamin shop or whatever it is, wherever you are in the world, you know what I'm talking about. And you look at walls and walls of tubs and boxes and droplets and whatever else. Those are supplements. <laughs> Yeah, it's and there, massive, there are massive. shops that just do supplements. I mean, I know there are in Cape Town. There's a shop just down the road from us that just does supplements, are, and it's big States, business. It's warehouse-sized stores. I mean, yeah. it's six meters up and 30 meters across, wall to ceiling, and mm. floor to ceiling, wall to wall of tubs of everything you can imagine. It's an astonishing business. Is it? Is it? Is it good marketing that's making those businesses successful? Why, why do you think people desire? Supplements. Well, marketing, I remember from my management studies, um, marketing is defined as meeting people's needs profitably. So, yes, it's good marketing, <laughs> but what it's doing is it's capitalizing on human psychology. Yeah. Um, so human psychology is needy. It says that I need to take something X, Y, Z because I'm going to get fitter, stronger, more muscular, leaner, less fat, whatever it is, lose weight. And I can only achieve this if I take these products. So what those products have done is they've positioned themselves front and center in people's minds as being necessary. In other words, and when we say necessary, we're implying that if I didn't take it, I can't succeed. So they've become indispensable in people's minds. And there are surveys that have asked people, do you need a supplement? And something like between two thirds and three quarters say, yes, they do. The, cor the corollary to that, of course, is that when you say, do you believe diet and training are sufficient? The answer to that is no. So basically what supplements have done in a nutshell is that they have positioned themselves as the solution to a problem. The, the problem is that people don't believe that the modern diet is sufficient, though, isn't it? Well, I mean, that's, that's, why the they, that's why they've identified supplements as the solution. Yeah. So, so supplements have become, thanks to clever marketing and the human psyche, the solution to a problem. Now, that problem is different for different people. Yeah. For one person, it's weight loss. For another person, they need to be leaner, lose fat. For another one, they need to bulk up and get leaner. For another one, they need to get fitter, healthier, whatever it is. Anti-aging for an older person, they want to feel younger. Yeah. So they've got a problem and then they think, well, what's the solution? And they don't think diet. They don't think training. They don't think lifestyle. They think supplement. And so that's the, that's the fundamental issue is that supplements have managed to displace 
good lifestyle as the essential ingredient or element for success. And in a way, it's a quick fix, isn't it? I mean, if you say to somebody, if you take this tablet, you're going to recover quicker instead of actually just training properly and doing the right prioritization around your training, it's much easier to say, take this supplement. And I guess there's also the placebo effect of all these supplements that have a, a big effect on how you think about your training or your health. Exactly. So it would be a quick fix if it worked. Um, yes. We'll discover <laughs> we'll discuss this. that there's very little evidence that many of these, any of these supplements actually work. But that's what people are attracted to or enticed by is the notion of a quick fix. The notion yeah. that I can keep doing the same things I'm doing and get twice the results because of a tablet, a liquid, a, a shake, whatever it is. Yeah. And there's a there's an addiction to, to that prospect. Um, yeah. We fall for it far too easily. And there are, of course, I mean, we'll get into the supplements that do work and why some things do work and how they work and what the benefits are and the risks, of course. But let's, let's kind of delve a little bit into the sort of the psyche of what we believe works. So if I go to, if I'm a, an endurance athlete and I believe, and I still believe this, that when you finish a ride, you've got some sort of depletion of glycogen or sugar. There is obviously a very good argument to suggest you need to replace that energy that you would have either during a ride or after a ride because it helps with the recovery. So we're not saying that supplementation is don't do it at all because there are benefits to some level of supplementation. Am I right? Yes. Yeah, so, and what we want to try and work through in this discussion, I think, is going to be a a model or a framework for people to apply almost a cost benefit assessment yeah. to their supplement choices, because. I've heard many dietitians, nutrition experts, physiologists speak about this and they, they dismiss supplements out of hand. And so far what I've said in this conversation with you, you might be thinking we're leaning the same way. There are practical constraints and considerations that mean that for some people supplements might actually be quite important. Yeah. So for those people, what we need to work towards is giving them a, a framework so that they can actually make better decisions. Because it's it's the same thing as like, if you want to prevent STDs, you can argue for abstinence, but actually that just doesn't work because extreme behaviors are typically rejected by people. So you're better off educating about safe sex than abstinence. You know, you've got to yeah. meet people in a pragmatic way. And I think supplements is, is a little bit the same like that. So what you're saying oh, is it'll right. Just, it'll just be an itch. It'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> so we want to help you scratch this particular itch. And the, in that respect, there are benefits to supplements, whether mm. it's a vitamin, a protein, whatever it is. But we also need to be fully informed and understand that where there's a benefit, there's probably also a cost. And it's not just money. There are risks and potential harm that might be introduced as a consequence of supplement use and if you understand that and you make the decision with your eyes wide open then fine go for it but we have to be fully upfront and appreciate that there's yeah there's a placebo effect and that's cool but it's not just that and these things are not just benign you might think a vitamin supplement for instance is either going to work or not and that's it it might actually be detrimental in some respect so let's have a bit of balance is what we're saying in this cost benefit assessment so let's cut to the chase, and I know there's a lot to discuss after this, but what do we know works, so if anything? If a person's diet is highly inadequate, in other words, their diet is severely restricted, then there is a high risk that they will be nutrient deficient. Now, that mm -hmm. could be micronutrients and vitamin. 
or it could be macronutrients in the sense that, for instance, protein intake in people who have very restrictive diets might be low. So where where you see a person who lives a restrictive lifestyle, then the question becomes completely different because for them, supplements might actually be important to fill the gaps that they leave behind. Mm -hmm. Where the person's diet is not restrictive, then the picture is completely different. So the only vitamins or micronutrients that have ever been shown to be commonly deficient are vitamin D and iron. Wow. So those are the only two around which there's consensus that they are necessary as supplements. Not in every human being, yeah. but a lot of the time. So vitamin D, if you do indoor sports, if you live up in northern hemisphere climes where it's cooler and there's less direct sunlight for many months of the year, and if you don't get much sunlight. So, yeah. And out of interest, remember we spoke to Dr. Adrian Rotano, who's a, is a physician with a professional cycling team, and... He told us that the prevalence of vitamin D deficiency in elite cycling is actually very high. And you think, well, these guys are on the bike for three, four hours a day. Yes, I remember this. But because they use sunscreen so liberally, they actually can quite often develop vitamin D deficiencies. So then it needs to be treated. Because whenever you are deficient in something, it's a problem. Yes. If your diet provides you with enough, then taking more doesn't do any good because you just excrete it because your body... Yeah, I just mean, makes you pee orange. If you're exactly, if your if your car's fuel tank is fifty liters and you put sixty liters of petrol into it, ten liters spills on the floor. I mean, it's yeah. obvious. So vitamin D, and right. then the other one's iron, particularly for people who don't eat meat, and for women because they lose like iron through menstruation. Mm. So those are the only two that have been shown to be necessary in a lot of cases. I mean, that, that's quite a statement because. I thought you would include vitamin C in that because there's so many vitamin C, uh, you know, sort of th- products. And also, you know, anybody says if you've got a bit of a cold or you're, or you're training hard, take vitamin C, it will increase your immunity. Are you saying something like vitamin C? There's no real evidence that it really works no, significantly? No, the evidence is mixed on vitamin C. I remember learning about vitamin C yeah. in school. Like that was what they used to teach us because they used to teach that sailors used to get scurvy because they were on a boat for months at a time without access to the foods that provide it. We don't live like that. So yeah. the foods that we eat provide so much vitamin C that to find someone who's deficient in it is astonishingly rare. And so oh, really? when people supplement with vitamin C, most of it is in excess and therefore just gets excreted. Now, many years ago, I think it was in the 90s, Peters et al. published a paper showing that if you took high doses of vitamin C, your risk of infection dropped. That study in that form has never been replicated, so it stands alone suggesting that. There are some other studies that have shown that when you start off with an infection in the first few days and you take high doses of vitamin C, you can reduce the length of that infection. Um, So it cuts the infection, I think, I was reading about it earlier, by four days or something. So instead of... You know, the theory was that instead of 28 days a year of illness, you might have 24. Now, that could well be worth taking a yeah. vitamin C supplement for. But so much of the research in this space is not high quality. So we interviewed Christy Ashwanden a couple of months ago, and she told us about a study she'd done where they wanted to test whether drinking beer improves recovery or, yeah. or worsens recovery, because that's obviously what you think. And what they found was that drinking beer helps recovery. Now, that's a bogus finding. Yeah. The point I'm trying to make is that when you do Sadly. these... Sorry? Sadly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when you do these studies, 
it's very difficult to control all the factors and you there is quite a high risk of throwing up false positive findings and i think a lot of the supplement work falls into that category so collectively there's hints that vitamin c might reduce the severity of infections but it's not particularly strong evidence i mean i'm not a sports scientist but i'm I'm always hoping to be one one day but it seems such an easy thing to do to test whether vitamin C works or not. Surely if you get a group of 100 people and you some of them in a supplement and the other give you, you give them a placebo and you take them and you look at who is more susceptible to flu over the flu season. Is, that, is it not a simple enough process just to do that? Because it is the most publicized vitamin of them all and we all believe that it's you should take that vitamin C supplement during winter because it will help you feel better. Yeah, but you have to test more than 100. You've got to test thousands of people um, because there's such a wide range in behavior and natural susceptibility to getting infections. I mean, look at the situation in the world right now. You know, Mm. we've seen how complex immunology (laughs) is in response to viruses. So you need thousands of people and you need to try and control as much as possible their exposure. So what happens if you've got 500 and 500, one group getting a placebo, one group getting vitamin C, and you're not controlling it, and just coincidentally, your group getting the placebo happens to go out more and expose themselves to more restaurants, nightclub scenes, etc. Yeah. All of a sudden, you've got a finding. What happens if it's the other way around? Finding's cancelled out. So the, it sounds simple, but it's actually quite complex because... Whether or not you get your outcome, i.e. I'm sick or I'm healthy, Mm. is actually a function of 50 things. And you're only testing one of them. Theoretically, you have to then control the other 49, and you can't. So you need thousands of people to be able to establish this, and that hasn't been done. You're going to hate me for saying this, but I know a couple of weeks ago, because you'd been putting so many hours in on the bike, you weren't feeling great. And um, you said to me a, you know, a year or so ago that a lot of doctors that look after sports people say if they're feeling a bit fluish and like a heavy dose of paracetamol and vitamin C once off mm. can help. Uh, and, and you did that. So yeah, there's, yeah. there's, I guess for you, there's also that sense that maybe it could help. And, yeah, and it won't do any can. harm. And maybe it's a placebo. And as a once-off, I know that it's not harmful. I'm mm. not going to take massive doses of vitamin C and especially not paracetamol regularly. Mm. But as a once-off, if I'm going to go to bed and I've got a little bit of a scratchy throat and a slight headache, like the paracetamol is going to treat that. And the mm. vitamin C, I don't know whether I'm just giving myself a psychological boost, mm. but my lived experience, and that's not scientific at all, <laughs> is that it helps without causing harm. So... When I talk about this to people and try and give them some practical advice, I I always move them back towards this cost-benefit ratio. The cost to me of doing that as a once-off, once or twice a year, is trivial. I call it zero. The benefit might be zero, but it might be something. And when you are ever faced with a choice that's got zero cost and possible benefit, you'd be a fool not to do it. If someone was to come along and say, actually, that, that, that practice has got costs that you haven't assessed. And we say, when we say cost, we don't mean like as in a price. It means as an effect that is not desirable. Cost meaning, obviously, there's financial cost to yeah. it, but there's also a time cost sometimes. Yeah. There's an energy cost, and then there's a f- possible physiological cost. So that single dose, I don't know, has any downsides to me other than the, you know, the cost one, of the $1 tablet. that it costs to consume those, those yeah. tablets. So therefore... Without downside, even if the upside is unlikely but but possible, 
I'd do it. Mm. The problem is when you start thinking about taking that supplement regularly, and there's research on this, it's been shown, for instance, that if you take antioxidants, and vitamin C is one of them, the other, one's, the other well-known one is vitamin A. When you take those regularly, you actually blunt, this is fascinating, you actually blunt some of the beneficial effects that exercise causes in the body. What? So they've done studies <laughs> where they will give people antioxidants regularly, a daily dose of vitamin A, daily dose of vitamin C, well in excess of what's recommended. So it's overdosing. Yeah. yeah. Another group gets a placebo, and then they'll train them for four, six, eight weeks, and they'll measure things either side of the training block. Yeah. And the finding is that people who train with antioxidants get less of a metabolic benefit than the people who train with a placebo. Now, when you are exercising, one of the big benefits you want is you want your insulin sensitivity, your body's ability to regulate glucose to improve. That's what training does. That's why it's beneficial for diabetics and it prevents diabetes. These antioxidants might blunt that benefit. So now you see that's a cost. Sure. Because you've taken that multivitamin under the assumption that there's a possible benefit. Yeah. We've told you it's probably tiny, might only be a placebo, but you haven't factored in that cost. Now that you know that cost, you should look at that multivitamin a little bit differently now. Wow. Because you actually might be taking one step forward and two back instead of one forward and none back. That changes the dynamics of your decision. So sports people that are taking these things, I don't think the words chronically, but regularly, um, I mean, I think a lot of people do take antioxidants fairly regularly, particularly when it comes to seasonal times. There's always this belief that if you, you know, up your antioxidant levels or your vitamin A's and C's during the flu season or during heavy training, you'll be immune against picking up a cold or flu. Mm. But what, what you're saying is that tread carefully. Exactly. Yeah. Because whilst there might be some truth in the benefit side of that equation, it's unproven, as I've said, for vitamin D. And it's if there is an effect, it's a very small effect. You now see that there actually is another side to the scale. And it's Which a, is it's more proven. Downside. Yeah. So you'd have to now weigh it up. It becomes a lot more difficult than just I've got nothing to lose. In fact, you might actually have yeah. something to lose other than your money. So there's always been this thing of like if you take multivitamins when you don't need them, you just pee them out and you're going to have expensive urine. Well, you might have expensive urine and a blunted training benefit. So mm. it, it should make you think twice about it. You know, there's another one. Resveratrol is, an, is another supplement also promoted for antioxidant benefits. And the studies on that one have shown that when athletes take them, they get less of a drop in blood pressure. And obviously you want that to happen. You want blood pressure to come down. It's one of the benefits of exercise. Yeah. Your vascular function gets better with exercise. Your VO2 max improves with exercise. For all three of those outcomes, blood pressure, vascular function, VO2 max, taking the supplement blunted the benefits. Why does it do that? Do you know what your action is? Because part of the mechanism that drives the benefit is the inflammation. Uh, so the, remember, the antioxidants are like mops that come along and they sweep up those free radicals and so on. Those free radicals are triggering the the cascade of reactions that drives the benefit. It's the same reason why icing might be detrimental. Yes, it prevents the inflammation, which is not good. Right, so you actually want to facilitate inflammation as part of the adaptation process. And when you stop it from happening, you actually then undermine the good work you did through training. Yeah. 
So that was in a podcast you did a couple of uh, podcasts ago where we talked about, and one of the big findings I've learned from that was that you know this whole idea about icing. I think we actually spoke it with Christine Ashwanden about that, um, where we were saying you know, the whole idea of getting into an ice bath for recovery, you're taking away the action of the recovery. Exactly. But if you're exercising every day, obviously reducing inflammation is a benefit. Yeah. But actually the training benefit is less. So if you need to recover for a session that's going to follow shortly yeah. thereafter, then your priority is to get rid of that inflammation quickly because it's yeah. that benefit matters more than a training adaptation. But you, if, if you're in a training block, then you don't want to do it. Yeah. So when you look at resveratrol, it's sold. I mean, I'm looking at the label from one product claimed to help and this is the other thing by the way if you see a list like this you know they're rolling you a line because <laughs> like nothing does all these things longevity lose weight diabetes heart disease reduce wrinkles immune system arthritis energy and stamina metabolism alzheimer's that's the list so everything right. from your heart to your brain it will also get your lover back and also give you a larger penis probably as well it's exactly you... like those things like <laughs> it's like tear the strip off because this like dr lucky is going to help you change your yeah. life around in every way possible from your nose to your toes you'll fix everything and the problem with this is of this list, the only evidence that exists is it does affect energy and stamina and metabolism, but not in a good way. Yeah. So cool. it's sold to you on the basis of these promises. And maybe it does reduce inflammation, but maybe you didn't want that in the first place. Yeah. And so I think the point of this, and it's the same with multivitamins, is don't think of them as just benign. Expensive urine might be the least of your problems. I guess with any of these things, I mean, you know, vitamins and supplements are part of it. Anything that's got a fad that makes logical sense, you know, for me, it makes sense that if you're training hard and you're producing a lot of things that the antioxidants need to mop up, mm. taking a supplement that reduces that, it makes absolutely logical sense unless you're a sports scientist. Yeah. So it's an easy sell, really, isn't it? I mean, you're talking to athletes, sports people, of course I'm going to take antioxidant because. I'm producing lots of these free radicals all the time. I think it's it's true. It's so enticing. It is. You know, and and so so if you come back to like we we didn't I mean I gave you the world's broadest definition of a supplement, but a supplement is a thing added to something else in order to enhance it. So yeah. we think yeah. I'm going to do everything from A to X and then I'm going to add Y and Z and I'm going to have the whole thing. But the problem is that when you add Y and Z, you might take away A and B. And all of a sudden you're lacking. And it's it's enticing only because we underestimate how well regulated and well controlled the body's physiology actually is, you know. Yeah. So we're, we're trying to cheat complex physiology. And we'll see that when we talk about why some of these other supplements, the for lack of a better description, the designer supplements, the carnitines, the precursor supplements, they don't work because they're trying to exploit physiology in a way that it just it's too complex to be cheated with a simple con job do we know and i know that we probably haven't prepared for this question so just uh you know forgive me for doing this but do we know that if you're supplementing with vitamin c or any kind of other supplement does it actually stop your body potentially from producing that particular item or vitamin or whatever naturally in other words if you're taking a lot of vitamin c um not some probably not a good example but does it actually reduce your body's ability to make these things naturally by taking supplements? Does it so in the case of the vitamins and, and those 
those supplements, you don't produce you them. You don't produce them, yeah. Anyways, yeah. Um, so they have to be ingested. Or testosterone, for example. But on the, not, in the not case a good example the, again. In the case of the hormones, whenever you're messing with anything that is endogenous to the body, so then you're talking growth hormone, insulin, testosterone, uh, adrenal glands produce adrenaline, cortisol, um, mm. then you do. And you see, that's where it becomes risky. The only saving grace is that I think most of the supplements are so ineffective that they don't do enough to even change the body's normal balance and systems. Yeah. So you actually probably escape that downside. If you actually dope and you actually get medical products, testosterone, growth hormone, insulin, and so on, then I think you run that risk. That's one of the potential harmful side effects is that you – and I, I remember – I once organized a conference and we got a guy to come and give a personal testimony about his doping because he was a bodybuilder here in South Africa. He had access to all the things and he did them all. And he said that he he now finds that he's unable to function normally because he sure. he's messed up his pituitary gland, he's messed up his hypothalamic axis, he's messed up his adrenals, his testicle, uh, his testosterone levels are out of whack mm. because he has chronically messed up the homeostasis of those systems so it can happen i mean it's never been documented as to like the degree or when or when it doesn't hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com I mean, this might be the time to sort of define what we mean by supplements that are, you know, the kind of stuff you buy at a supplement shop versus supplements that are illegal doping, like human growth hormone, testosterone, those type of things where we know that particularly I've had people who are in my age group 50 plus saying that once you get to 50 plus, you need to, you know, boost your testosterone and you need to help your body recover and maintain its muscle mass. Human growth hormone is the way to go. And I've had people saying to me, you should, you should do this. <laughs> but that is, that's, that's not supplementation. That is actually doping. That is medical intervention. Yeah. And if it's medical intervention with a need, then it's fine. You know, so you get people. But only a doctor should right. prescribe that. Exactly, because who identifies that need? You don't identify that need when you look in the mirror in the morning and say, I'm actually, I'm looking a bit flabby and soft. I need mm. drugs. Pick up the phone to a doctor who's maybe a little bit borderline ethically and he'll say, I'll give them to you. Yeah. Or you've got to go on the black market and get them that way. So so that that would be medical interventions for which there might be a need or there's not, in which case you're acting a bit unethically. And yeah. like in the last probably 15, 20 years, there's been a massive growth in anti-aging medicine. Um, I remember in 2007, I don't know if you'll recall this, but Sylvester Stallone got arrested at the border in Australia and he had a suitcase full of human growth hormone. <laughs> well, that's because the guy's trying to stay permanently 30 years old. Yeah. Uh, we see Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's the same thing. I mean, these guys don't look like that. Just look what they... happened to his, Sylvester Stallone's lower lips since he's taken. <laughs> yeah, there might be more in play than <laughs> just than his that. lower lips. But a lot of those guys, I mean, like their business, yeah. their income, their status depends on their appearance, and they will do whatever is necessary, including traveling with a suitcase full of a banned drug. And in the end, it was uh, confiscated, and he paid a fine and all sorts of things. So, 
the anti-aging clinics are now a thing. They prescribe testosterone and growth hormone, among others, to try and reverse what the body naturally loses as it ages. That's not supplementation in our definition. That's medical okay. treatment. Yeah. Okay. And it's, in my opinion, unethical, but it's done by doctors or illegally. Okay, so we've defined that. Okay, so let's let's move on to the let's start with the sort of general things. We, we talked about the vitamins, but one of the interesting places is when you get into the sort of muscle building powders and the creatines, that sort of thing. What categories of supplements have been shown to work? I, I know that you've said before that things like creatine, that was a huge thing in the early two thousands. That there, there is proof that that does work in terms of building muscle mass for some people. So this introduces us to the concept that there are responders and non-responders. Yeah, and that's the case for most things. Diet is the same. Like you'll get people who respond to a low-fat diet, and you'll get people who just feel absolutely rinsed by it, and they have to have a higher carbohydrate diet. So because there are individual differences biochemically, metabolically, even the supplements for which there is evidence are not guaranteed to work for everyone. That should be, I think, quite logical. Caffeine yeah. is the same. I know people who will take espressos before bedtime and sleep like a baby. There are other people who will have the shakes for hours afterwards. So our natural uh, response hmm. to caffeine is completely different. Sodium bicarbonate is the other one that's been shown to have reasonable Is that evidence. just salt? It's a buffer. So it's, it's, uh, it's responsible for reducing the acidosis that's caused by very high intensity exercise so the evidence that exists for that particular supplement tends to be for high intensity sprints so kayakers who do 30 seconds of activity 400 meter runners the downside is it causes bloating and nausea so a lot of the time athletes will finish a high intensity training session and throw up violently oh. but for them that that downside is worth the cost because they'll go two percent faster as a result of having used it you know so and then carbohydrate supplements pyroids yeah. gatorades gels etc so those are the those are the four where there's reasonable evidence for an effect for but, a performance effect yeah for what they yeah. claim to do so creatine is claimed to improve your strength and therefore to allow you to train that little bit harder to become stronger and build muscle mass and that's probably the most researched supplement creatine by virtue of the yeah it was a massive deal in i was the gonna 90s say it, it's almost like it's it's almost like it's not as it's not popular anymore is that a thing i mean i know i remember in the early 2000s everybody was doing creatine everybody who mm. played high school rugby was in a creatine platform so they could make the first team rugby team and it and it's i, I haven't heard much about creatine for a while is it still in products yeah yeah you can buy it you buy it as a as a thing by itself creatine monohydrate the idea by the way if you're interested is when you do very high intensity exercise like powerful weightlifting or sprinting one of your body's energy stores comes from creatine phosphate which is an energy compound stored in the muscle and it's used to generate atp which regular listeners will know about because we've mm -hmm. spoken about it a few times adenotriphosphate so adenosine triphosphate yeah. and that, that atp is necessary to provide the energy for muscle contraction to continue so creatine phosphate does that therefore i can train little bit harder, get 10% more on the weights that I'm lifting. And then as a consequence of that over time, I'm going to get more muscle mass and more, more strength and power. So, and that's true. Like there are studies that have shown it um, with the admitted fine print that some people respond fairly well to it and get 10% stronger. Other people don't respond at all and stay exactly the same. 
but there was always those scare stories that it would affect your liver if you took it too much and you had to drink and kidneys and all sorts of things. I mean, there there were some downsides. Is there any proof of the downsides? No, not really, because no one studies users for long enough to document Mm. it. So you get anecdotes. Um, There were case series of people taking creatine who would get quite bloated because it causes a bit of water retention as well. Mm. And they'd get nausea and bloating and stomach cramps. I remember going to a presentation once and the guy who was a strength and conditioning coach of one of the professional rugby teams said that in the early days they would take it at half time. They'd all take a dose because they thought that's how it would work. <laughs> and within 10 minutes of running out into the field, half the players was, were cramping and had to come mm. off the field to go to the bathroom. So <laughs> there were acute problems. I've never seen anyone document the long-term problems. But it's an example of, a, of an important lesson, and that's the responder, non-responder, which if you apply that same logic to multivitamins, to fat burners, to anti-aging, human growth hormone precursor-type supplements, you can see situations where... You might test 20 people, some of them get worse, some of them stay the same, and one or two of them get outrageous results. The, the, the way the supplement industry is geared is that those outrageous results become the message. Those are the before and after pictures. That's exactly it. Yeah. And those things are highly manipulated. There's so many factors that go into, you know, as a, you know how you, you design photographs to make someone look better or not. Oh, and uh, never done that. You, you just mess with the lighting <laughs> and so on. You change the posture and all of a sudden you look like an athlete, whereas before you looked like a vegetable. And that's then becomes the message. So testimonials yeah. drive the evidence and it's not evidence. But that's the kind of thing that happens. So the supplement world relies on responders and it ignores its non-responders. I mean, we all know the testimonial stories. stories. I mean, if you look at any product that has any sort of benefit in terms of weight loss and performance enhancement, especially in the gym space, Mm. it's always based on testimonial um, uh, support. Yeah, and when you go to the websites, and I was looking in preparation for this, like through a bunch of supplement websites, I feel like I need a disinfectant for my brain and my eyes. But always like the landing page, the very first thing you see above the fold, so to speak, on the landing page of website is a picture Mm. of someone before and after and his words. Yeah. And it becomes about testimonial. And you actually have to look quite hard to find anything even remotely technical because they know that people aren't discerning enough to care about the technical mm. stuff. I remember in honors, like now we're going back almost 20 years, we were giving an assignment to critique a supplement company's claims. And I cannot tell you how difficult it is because they are so devious in the way they position evidence. They'll, they'll show you one graph of growth hormone levels after exercise when you take the supplement versus not. And it's this unbelievably, wow, look at this, the growth hormone levels go up a thousand percent. But then you've got to go and find the study and you discover that it wasn't done on humans, it was done on mice. (laughs) And what they did was they injected growth hormone and some other things with it in order to cause that difference. And then you look at the product and the product has got one hundredth of the amount that was given to the mouse. So you say, well, these guys have deceived me into thinking yeah. this anyway you get the idea there's all these little yeah. tricks that they well, that's use. the that's the reason at, right at the start of this podcast i was saying that i i don't want to review supplement you, products in runners world and bicycling purely because no matter how nice that company is and how legitimate they seem there's no way of testing how those claims or whether they're true or not. unbelievably complex i mean yeah. i remember looking up one called gaba which is gamma immunobutyric acid it's a neurotransmitter which 
also is known to increase the synthesis of human growth hormone. So human growth hormone, listeners may know, is a banned drug. An athlete who takes it gets banned. Water listed. Yeah. It's a prescription-only drug, so you cannot get it from a shop that sells supplements unless it's dodgy. <laughs> so what the supplement companies have done is said, well, we can't give you HGH, but we're going to give you a dozen things that make HGH. And that's going to give you HGH. And you, re- so. you read one out to me before the podcast. I don't know whether you can find it, which had some, what does it have? Antler, essence oh, yeah. of so, antler horn? Or so it says, it's called HyperGH14X Daily Supplement. <laughs> Features, I'm reading this off the website that's poisoned my mind. 15 potent HGH precursors. So in metabolism, a precursor is a building block of. So right. a brick is a precursor to a house, basically. Yeah. So human well, growth that, hormone. That analogy doesn't quite work, but yeah. uh, concrete is a precursor to a house. So so when you say HGH, you mean a human growth hormone precursor. Exactly. Which means it's saying it doesn't have human growth hormone, growth hormone in it. Because it's not but, allowed to. But it's not allowed to, mm-hmm. but it is does the same thing, right. supposedly. So we're going to give you the building blocks for growth hormone. We're right. going to give you arginine, tyrosine, glutamine, glycine, lysine, tribulus terrestris extract, astragalus root extract, deer antler velvet, <laughs> uh, GABA is the one I mentioned, colostrum, valine, pituitary powder, phosphatidylcholine, l-ornithine, GTF, chromium. So you look at this and you're uninformed and not discerning and you think, surely one of those 15 is going to land. I'm just um, thinking about all the moose that are cruising around Canada so, without any antlers because they're harvesting the antlers. I don't know. <laughs> Deer antler spray became a thing when... Have you heard of such a thing? Yeah, because friend of the pod, David Epstein, uh, when he was an investigative journalist with Sports Illustrated, he uh, found out that deer antler spray was being used widely by professional sportsmen in the US. Um, and he wrote an expose on it. And it contains insulin-like growth factor, IGF-1, which is a banned substance. So, sure. But the thing is, they don't really care in, in the NFL about these banned substances. So <laughs> they were they were pretty happy to be seen to be taking this stuff. I don't know how they make it, though. I, I can't imagine it's literally. It's just, I mean, I, I mean, as much as we're laughing about it, it just sounds absurd mm. to have that in a list of ingredients because does it make you think that as a, as a consumer that if it has that, um, then you're going to. It's it's a bit like the you know adding the eye of newt into the into the witch's stew. Exactly. Uh, you know it doesn't. It maybe sounds like it should be there, but really for the average person, we have no idea. First of all, how they got it, if it's in there at all, has anybody measured it, and does it is there any scientific basis for you know, whether this anti stuff has any benefits so sus- at all? I suspect most people haven't made it because to find that list, by the way, needed like five clicks uh-huh. on the website. Yeah. Because that's the only thing I was there for, because I wanted to understand what the precursors would be. Right. But it took me a while to find it. What I could find very easily was testimonials and before and after pictures. There's no shortage of those. Right. But there's a real lack of these. And then right at the bottom, there's a there's a, one of those graphs that I mentioned, and they make the claim that HGH is in, HGH re- release is increased by four thousand one hundred percent during workouts when you take this drug, compared to a two percent increase without it. But when you look at the graph, you, you cannot get those numbers. So they've made so it's like it's, that's mathematical sleight of hand. Then when you look at the study, it turns out it's a mouse study and they've actually injected <laughs> something else not related to their 15 products. But you'd have to be quite uh, pedantic to want to f- explore that. Right. I reckon most people, maybe not most, but a third of potential consumers will just be sold on a testimonial. Yeah. I'm getting it. 
It's got 15. One of those 15 will work. I'm in. Another third might say, actually, I want to know what those 15 are. They're going to look it up and they're going to see that most of those things, the arginine, the tyrosine, the glutamine, are all amino acids. And yes, they are part of growth hormone. So therefore, this is credible. Yeah. A, a to B, I can see a link. This must work. Right. And they think of themselves as discerning, but they don't take the next step. So the whole thing about precursors, I'll give you this. We do love an analogy here. <laughs> is what the supplement companies are trying to do is convince you that if you add more of the ingredients, you get more of the product. That's like saying that if you're baking a cake and you just keep adding eggs, 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 you're going to get a bigger cake. That's stupid. You know it's not going to work. You're going to get a mess. Yeah. And that's in a simple in baking analogy. Imagine, here's, here's another one. is if, you, if you're in a car factory and you've got two steering wheels, two gearboxes, two engines, two gear levers, two brake pedals, two accelerator pedals, how many cars can you make? And you've got eight wheels. How many cars? Two. Two. <laughs> If, you, if I now add 55 wheels, how many cars? Well, more, more cars. No, because I'm adding 55 oh, so wheels. Oh, it's me, yes, that's right. So I'm not, so you could add a thousand yeah. wheels. Yeah, you, still still getting, the yeah, you, you still haven't got the product. Right. Yeah. You can add a thousand wheels, two steering wheels, another two gearboxes, mm. and so on, but you're still making two because you were limited by the mm. engines. So the, the, the Sometimes it loses me in your analogies. That's why so I was struggling to keep up there. I hope I haven't lost <laughs> the listeners, but you get it now, right? Is, I get it now. Is that... The, the ability of the manufacturing plant to make the end product, a car, yeah. is a function of all the ingredients, not just one. So when you add all these amino acids and you say, we're going to make more human growth hormone, you're assuming that the factory is set up to actually turn those into growth hormone. Mm. The same thing was true, by the way. There was another supplement. This is a slightly different area um, called carnitine, which was a weight loss supplement. Have you heard of it? I know I have heard of it very so, often. So, carnitine, so a lot of the stuff I get sent. Carnitine was marketed as a fat burner. It would mm. help you metabolize fat. And the same principle was true. Give your body more carnitine, you'll burn more fat. Yeah. Well, no, because carnitine is one of literally dozens of different elements or enzymes or molecules involved in fat burning. And adding carnitine is like adding wheels to a car factory. It's not going to make more cars. Yeah. The, the, and carnitine, basically, for those who are interested, is... It's a molecule that's responsible for picking fatty acids up on the outside and bringing them to the inside of the mitochondria. So you can think of it almost as like the Uber of fatty acids. Yeah. So the theory is if I put more Ubers on the road, I'll get more people into the nightclub. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, because the nightclub might be closing its doors. To There's, there's yeah. a dozen other things yeah. that are stopping people. So this is where they, 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 they I mean, use. It really is murky. I mean, what we're saying in all of these facts is that there is no control first of all, of supplements. And it's so murky that there is almost no evidence of anything working. I mean, are we, are we being as strong as that? Yes, we are. So the murkiness arises in part because of the complexity of human yeah. physiology and biochemistry. You cannot just flick a switch here and cause downstream effects the way that you think. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. And that's the precursor. You're not going to get human fallacy. growth hormone flowing through your veins by taking a supplement that doesn't have human growth hormone in it. Exactly. But you, it's might, got you might get 5% five, more of it. But these yeah. things are all regulated as part of a homeostatic feedback right. loop. The moment yeah. it goes up, it switches itself yeah. off. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so the... The whole premise, we call it the precursor, well, I've, I'll call it the precursor fallacy. Mm. And it's too, physiology, biochemistry is too complex for it to actually work. So that's your first problem. And then the second thing is it's murky because oftentimes these specific designer supplements don't even contain what they can 
adverts purport to contain. Yeah. So that, that's another issue. This is a good one to raise, yeah. Sometimes they contain things that aren't listed and other times they don't contain the things that are listed. So you get a combination of false omissions and false inclusions. That's because there's no control. That's because supplements are not regulated at yeah. all by any oversight body. And so yeah. on the manufacture side, on the advertising side, and on the ingredient side, there is very little accountability for making claims that are not verified. So let me clarify that. For instance, in the US, the FDA does monitor the claims that are made. And from time to time, you will see that a product has been banned because it contains a herb that has been linked to cardiovascular negative cardiovascular outcomes, tachycardia, palpitations, potential cardiac arrests. Mm. And there have been cases. People do die as a consequence of reactions to these herbal supplements. So then what they'll do is they'll actually issue a statement that, uh, uh, what was the one that I saw? It was a bark extract. From now on, that is banned. The supplement then has to be taken out of circulation, and it comes back without bark extract, which means it now probably doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. But no one's discerning enough to tell that. Yeah. Or to identify that. So, yeah, so the, the lack of regulation and oversight. Means and also within batches, I mean, we have discussed this before. We've seen this in doping cases where um, sports people have tested positive for a banned substance and the, sa and the same product is then tested with, without the same effect. But the batch that they got is contaminated because of the manufacturing process and where it's manufactured is actually creating cross-contamination between batches. So one product one day in a batch might be totally different from another batch of, of the same product. Right, so this is common. And if, if I was an athlete who was in the testing pool and I knew I'd be tested, I would keep every single supplement that I use. I'd keep 20 grams of that powder. I'd keep two or three of the tablets when I'm finished, almost the same way that an accountant keeps the receipts. You know, yeah. like you have to do it because it is the single biggest risk other than a career-ending injury is that you take a supplement that you think is legal and it's been contaminated. Why does that happen? Because the factories that produce these supplements tend to produce everything all in the same place. And so the idea that you get contamination from one to the next is actually quite logical. And so all of a sudden you get it. And I've, I've worked with athletes who've failed drugs tests and mm. they say, can you help? Well, do you have the supplement anymore? No, it's finished. I've thrown it away three months ago. Okay, we can buy the same supplement off the shelf, but there's a pretty good chance that that one isn't the same as the one you got. Yeah, And there have been studies on this, like where they'll look at the ingredients on the, on the label and then they'll test the supplement. And 40% of the time, what's on the label isn't even in the supplement at tiny concentrations. 70% of the time, 40% it's, it's there. of the time. Yeah. God. I mean, so that you've got a two in five chance of buying something That's that contains fail. XYZ, and there's literally zero XYZ in the box, in the, in the actual pill or liquid powder. 70% of the time, it contains XYZ, but at lower levels than on the label. Now, that's, that might be devious. They might literally be doing that to save money, <laughs> but it could also be accidental. The point is, you don't know it. And so, I mean, I know one case. The guy fails a test. He has his supplements tested. There's two of them. The one supplement that was supposed to contain XYZ contained ABC. Yeah. The supplement that was supposed to contain ABC contained XYZ. So he was <laughs> he was getting what he paid for, but from the wrong supplement. Wrong supplement it was, it yeah. was completely bizarre. It's actually comical. I can't mention the company uh, because I'd probably get sued, but I remember a few years ago having a conversation with a, with a, a 
the head of a company that did supplements. And he said his model was quite simple. He had a certain amount that he would pay per per can or per supplement bottle. So it was either, you know, $2 was, was his kind of break-even point. So whatever it went into his big supplement box or powder or whatever it was had to have a sit. So it was about economy. So if, if it cost him more than two dollars, there was no there was no economy of scale for him and he wasn't making enough margin on it. And and it's a very cynical side of me that listened to this going, actually there's no science. It literally is about making money and selling the snake oil in packaging that looks like it's going to deliver. Yeah, but it's it's not that different to how you can cut cocaine and you can dilute yeah. the strength of it. Yeah. That's what you could do. You could take the powder and you could just mix it up with another powder that's benign and you cut it twice. And now every single bottle still being retailed for the same. I don't know, in this country it's 500 Rand, maybe overseas it's $20. Yeah, it's a lot of money here. And there's actually half the product. So now you've increased your margins by a factor of two. No problem, because no one's discerning enough to check on you. And but why no don't, instead of podcasting, why don't we just develop a, pro- a, a product which promises a lot and delivers little, and we can just uh, live happily ever after with our Ferraris? In, you know, in 2000, and I think it was 2012, just ahead of the London Olympics, Sports Illustrated in the US did a piece. Hopefully it's still out there in the archives. It's eight years ago now. On the steroid trade. Mm. And you could buy this stuff from China, and it was unbelievably cheap. I, I, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna, I don't want to make up numbers, but like, we were talking single-digit dollars to buy like a kilogram of this powder, mm. steroid, and you could create ten thousand doses off of it, and each of those doses might be worth a dollar. So you, I, I remember working out the margins and going like, oh my god, yeah, goodness. I'm in the wrong game. The problem is like, <laughs> there's a thousand other people who are more yeah. devious than we are who'd probably outmaneuver us, and so. We, we wouldn't be able to pull it off even if we did I'd, have I'd the create, I'd create lack a, of ethics to do it. I'd create a, dop- a, a, um, a dopamine supplement. <laughs> so it would give you the same effect without having to do the exercise. Yeah. It's like it's, it's <laughs> Take co- this and feel great. You'd be, have some cocaine dealers yeah, that's on your door because exactly. that's that would be your direct competition. <laughs> so just a disclaimer, we're not going to be doing our own science of sports supplements because uh, – we don't think it's ethical, but uh, we could, we so, could, we could. If we really struggle, we might do so. Just avoid those at all costs yeah. if you ever see them on the shelf. So, so on the side of risk, then I mean, now we've spoken about contamination with steroids. Sometimes the supplement companies are devious enough to put a steroid in a protein supplement mm-hmm. because then they know it works. So you're going to get a benefit. Mm-hmm. So now I'm taking what I think is a legal drug. I'm getting the gains that I've paid for. I'm going to go back to that. They've created a loyal consumer out of me as a consequence of like actually directly doping me. I'm sure that that's happening also. So all kinds of things are happening. And you as the consumer who's listening to this, you have no assurances. So mm-hmm. Herbalife, for instance, is a, is a company that's found itself in regulatory trouble for decades. There have been papers published. You can find these on PubMed on hepatotoxicity. So that's liver toxicity linked to Herbalife. There's a paper out of Spain where they documented 12 hospitalizations and concluded that there's a probable link. There was a study in Asia, which interestingly enough was then retracted. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure that's some legal dispute, probably, where they reported that there were thallium, lead, cadmium, mercury, chromium, and barium. These are heavy metals now contained within this herbalite. Even if it didn't contain that, because they're herbal, they contain all these herbs. You'd have to have a PhD in organic chemistry to understand what you're consuming. Yeah. You read the labels and it's just all these different things. But it sounds healthy because it's herbal. Well, that's the thing that they're yeah. marketing it as, you know. So, so, and, and in fact, herbal supplements, particularly those that are 
sold as fat burners are responsible for the highest proportion of adverse side effects with supplements. So we know that there are thousands of people every year who go to hospital emergency rooms as a consequence of supplement reactions. To and, particularly to weight loss and ones the, in particular. I mean, exactly. they're obviously the higher, higher preponderance amongst that group. Exactly. So it's mm. mostly in people be, in between the ages of 20 and 40, 70 to 75% of them are for weight loss supplements and most of those are herbal supplements. Wow. And that's because they contain all these central nervous system triggers, stimulants, and they end up causing palpitations, tachycardia, chest problems. Chest tachycardia? Pain, high heart rate. Because mm. that's what it's doing. And I mean, I know people who take their pre-workout drink. You know, they, they take it because it's basically a mix of caffeine and a whole bunch of other herbal things. It's like Red Bull on Red Bull. And uh, <laughs> they get this buzz. Like you get this like twitchiness, you know, this... Yeah. It's like taking a massive dose of caffeine to try and stay awake when you're studying for exams. And all of a sudden, they can't wait to exercise. They've got to put that energy somewhere, and they think that that's then helping their, their training. So they, they become addicted to that sensation. But those are the highest-risk supplements, there's no doubt. And wow. there was a London, athlete, a London marathon athlete, Claire Squires, I think, who died, and the coroner concluded that her death was almost certainly the consequence of taking a fat burner central nervous system containing supplement before she ran that race. And there's other stories like it. So that's more risk. So what we've been talking about for the last half an hour is downside upon downside. You know, you yeah. might blunt your training response. You might end up consuming glass or melamine or feces. I mean, we haven't even touched on that. Like yeah. an audit in South Africa <laughs> studied supplements off the shelf and they found glass and plastics and like human feces in the powders. So anyway, Shit. when when you... <laughs> When you start cataloging the downsides and you weigh them up against the benefits, then the balance really isn't looking very favorable to say, yes, I need a supplement. It's terrifying. Yeah, it is. It, it I, really yeah, is. I mean, I it's, it's terrifying to believe that there are so many people who take supplements because it is a big industry. It's terrifying to believe that people believe they, they make a difference. And, you know, there's also a, a lot of unscrupulous manufacturers that are doing things that they probably know aren't right, but they're making a lot of money out of it. And I guess that's the money Money is the reason why they're involved in it. But uh, yeah, uh, it, it scares me a bit. Yeah, you know? it does. Me I mean, also. Do, do we know, I mean, the, the fat burner thing, I'm glad you touched on that because that's one area where I, you know, look at some of the products on the shelf now. It's such a promise. You know, you go to somebody who's battling to, you know, moms that are trying to lose their post baby weight and, you know, somebody who's just trying to get that kickstart. I've considered it before. I've gone, why don't I just do, you know, something for a while and it will just cut that weight and, mm. and then I'll be able to stop it after that. And, yeah. But it's, so, it's such an amazingly, it's such an attractive promise to, to put out there. Yeah, and we started by saying the supplement industry is mm. able to exploit the human psyche better than anything in the world. I mean, and that's why when you say that, when you're contemplating that, and I've been there too, I've said the same thing. I remember when I was a varsity undergrad, I wanted to bulk up a little bit. I thought like my running days are behind me. Let me see if I can get to the gym and start to change mm. my body. And I took a protein powder. Like So then I was in that for a few months and... In the end, I think I just got fat, probably because I wasn't training well <laughs> wasn't enough training. at the time and living a student lifestyle, not an <laughs> athletic one. But you see, the, the consequence, that's, that's actually a relatively positive outcome because if I'm taking fat burners, I mean, maybe they don't work, maybe they do, but they cause the side effects. Because in order to work, you see, they're not specific enough to just target fat metabolism. They're targeting fat metabolism working via central nervous system. And now... 
I mean, now you're you're basically infecting your body's computer system. Yeah. Right? yeah. If, you, if you're going to mess around with the central nervous system, change a lever here, push a button there, so to speak, uh-huh. like you don't know what's going to happen as a consequence of that. So it's very risky. But the need is so strong. And the problem is that the lack of confidence and patience in diet and exercise is so low. Yeah. Or, well, it's a lack of confidence and patience. It's so high. You know, in other words, there is none. <laughs> yeah. That uh, supplements fill that hole, you know. It's a quick it's fix. It's a big hole and they fill it very easily. Yeah, because we, as we've said, it's a, it's a quick fix. Yeah. And in a world where we want that quick fix because we're all too busy to train or look at our diets more carefully, it's, well, I'll just take that. That'll, mm. that'll be just as good. And I will say something almost, and I'm, I'm, I'm partly playing devil's advocate here, but the dietitians that I know are sometimes frustrating to me and I sometimes wonder whether they're part of the problem because they look at that mom who wants to lose the baby weight or that person who's been injured for three months, broke a bone, sick with COVID, whatever it is, couldn't train, lifestyle's gone little bit backwards during lockdown because hey it was lockdown that person now wants to lose weight they're four or five kilograms overweight the dietitian is going to come at them with a theoretical solution and it's not an attractive one and i sometimes wonder whether eat more vegetables (laughs) yeah and like snack regularly okay but what sort of snacks well you could make this 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 person says do you have any idea how busy i am i'm on the go from seven in the morning six in the evening i cannot I cannot accommodate your theoretical solution yeah, into my life. Absolutely agree with you on this. So then, then they're it's too arduous. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a th- it's theoretically bang on. Yeah, that's what you should do yeah. if you were a textbook, <laughs> but you're not. Yeah. You're a real person with preferences for foods that they've now said you should eat, and sorry, preferences and dislikes for foods they've now said that you should eat. Right. Um, and you, and you reject their advice because you just cannot see how to fit it into your yeah. life. And then you turn to supplements. And mm. I wonder whether they should not be, you know, I, I once gave a talk at the South African Medical Conference where my conclusion was dietitians should be providing a supplement if it can be done in a safe way. Yeah. And of course, the, 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 bat, the, 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 the sort of bat in the hatches, the walls go up. Well, we can't do it in a safe way. But what's the safest way you could do it? Could you... Could you provide them with a food substitute, like a, in this country, in hospitals, for instance? So South Africa, for those who don't know, massive, obviously, socioeconomic disparities. And as a consequence, we have a lot of malnourished people. When those people are in hospitals, they don't feed them whole foods because it's massively expensive. They give them food su- substitutes, powders that are mixed with milk or water in order to try and nourish them. Yeah. Those are legitimate supplements, because they're made in food manufacturing plants, not <laughs> steroid factories. Yeah. And I, I remember saying to a dietitian, imagine a 17-year-old rugby player, athlete, or a 31-year-old mother who wants to lose the baby fat, is sitting in your office, and she says, I think I need a supplement. What if the dietitian said, how about we negotiate and we strike a compromise? This is the diet I think you should follow. Here's the exercise plan that you've been given. I think that those will do a great job, but here's a meal substitute or supplement that I think will also complement what I'm about to give you. Yeah. I think that person would be more inclined to listen to the diet and exercise advice. So yeah, because I, I remember it, when I grew up, when I was a very skinny young teenager, I used to be on a South African product called Complan. And it's because I, you know, I, I was at school and running around and doing a lot of activity and probably mm. didn't eat as much as I should have. Um, and ironically, was very underweight. Mm. Um, and Complan was great because I could just down it in the morning before I went to school. But right. you're right, that that would be a, that's a, that's an, 
I mean, that compound was really nice to taste, so it was easy to do it. Mm. And I guess it's the same thing. You could have that healthy smoothie in the morning with the right right levels of things or that pill that adds those vitamins that you need done properly. And it's the same, it's the same thing that I think loses people credibility when it comes to proteins. When they say, research shows you only need 1.6 grams per kilogram per day of body mass. But you've got these guys who weigh 120 kilograms mm. and most of it's muscle mass. And so their lean mass demands are so high that they say, if I didn't supplement, I would waste away. Okay, and they're, not, they're not wasting away like you were when you were a kid mm. or even towards my level now and our mm. level now. But yeah. relative to where they want to be, they feel that they cannot stay there without a supplement. Now, if, if, if you were to be dogmatic and say, no, there's absolutely no doubt that you don't need that whey protein. They'd laugh you out the room. You've, you've lost all credibility with them. Right. And so sometimes I wonder if there's not a trade-off between accepting some of the risks we've spoken about in return for actually getting them on side about the good stuff. Because we know that exercise works. We know that diet works. We know that supplements are risky and might not be necessary. But for some people, they are, whether it's a placebo, whether it's real or imagined, doesn't actually even matter. So now you're left with this, the situation is, all we got to do is figure out how can we get the risks as low as possible in order to keep that person on side. Yeah. Well, let's move on to that because that that's kind of think how we should conclude this. The safety aspect of this. How do we? I don't want to use how do we supplement, but how do we use the stuff that works safely, and how do we know how to do it safely? Yeah. So first of all, there's no 100% guarantee on safety or efficacy. So. You cannot guarantee either side of the equation. We've spoken about cost-benefit. We can call it upside versus downside. There is no way that you can guarantee the person zero downside, and there's no way you can guarantee them an upside. It's impossible. So like, let's park that now. Right. As we've discovered... Unequivocal. Even multivitamins may have downsides. They may have some upsides. Proteins may have downsides. They may have upsides. They, they, they change. They vary. Uh, the fat burners have very little upside and potentially catastrophic, life-changing, ending <laughs> downsides. So yeah. depending on where you stand, which supplement you're looking at, your risk balance equation, upside versus downside, might look different. Yeah. But what you can do is you can make decisions to minimize that risk as low as possible to the point that you might then be comfortable. And the way to do that is to avoid small, unestablished companies because they're the ones less likely to be regulated. Mm-hmm. I know that as I say that, I'm thinking some of the big companies are the biggest culprits. Yeah. So again, no guarantees. But at least at least with an established company that's been around for decades, you know that it's probably had some degree of oversight. Because it is true that there are startups all the time. Yeah. Some guy in the comfort of his own house, he's got a spare room or a garage, he's now starting to make the stuff. He's mixing powders and he's selling boxes. He's getting yeah. labels printed and off he goes. Yeah. Then what you can do is you can go to companies that do try and quality control these supplements. You do your research, find out. One such example is Informed Sport. Website is informed-sport.com. This is a company that's basically been set up to verify and audit supplement companies. So they go through what they describe on their website as a certification process, which consists of three steps. Number one is they investigate and audit your manufacturing quality control steps and, and policies. Number two is that they begin testing your product. And if they find banned substances or 
misleading label information, quantities and amounts like we've spoken about, they don't verify you. And if you then make the, if you get through those first hurdles, then they will start doing batch testing on your product. And then they publish a list of supplements that have been tested and certified. According that, to batch? According to batch. Wow. And, and some, some Olympic federations around the world, I know Australia does this, I know the UK does this, they give their athletes a list of products and batch numbers that are known to have been tested. It's yeah. not foolproof, but it probably cuts that risk by an order of magnitude. Mm. And so now if I take that supplement, I've got some assurance that I'm safe. If I go off piste and I take something that's not on the list that's been provided to me as being tested and I fail the test, I'm afraid I'm on my own because yeah. you've gone off the trails. <laughs> but there were signs saying, do not leave the trail. You went off. Now you find your own way back. Yeah. Whereas what they're doing is they're trying to keep people on the trails. And I think that's the proactive, constructive way to do it. And because Informed Sports website is there and it's pretty transparent, you can make use of that yourself, even as a non-athlete. So those are the kinds of things that you should now look to do, is treat yourself as though you're an elite athlete, understand what those risks are, and then use resources like, and there'll be others, I, I couldn't tell you what they are right now, but there's a certified brands page that Informed Sport runs, and you can see a list and you can see the brands, and these are the ones that at least are exposed to some oversight. Not zero risk, yeah. but lower risk. Yeah. yeah. I mean, despite the fact that you can and you look, can look at these resources and these websites for advice and these sort of things, can we safely conclude then that when it comes to supplementation, the first thing to look at for any sportsman out there or anybody lifestyle, active, actively lifestyle person is Training is a key part of what you should be looking at. Your diet is also a key part of things. The stuff that your mom told you when you were young, eat your vegetables and the supplement should almost be a last resort and only potentially under medical advice or with somebody who really knows what they're talking about. Exactly. And that's true whether you're an elite aspirant Olympian or whether you uh -huh. are a person who post lockdown has decided you're going to change your life around and get healthy. Yeah. You you still have access to the same expertise. You go to qualified dietitians. Don't and this was actually another astonishing thing is surveys have been done around the world, New Zealand, Ireland, South Africa, USA. More than a third of people get their advice from friends, coaches and magazines. And it's astonishing that the 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 person or the field of expertise in all four of these countries that is least likely to be asked for their opinion is a medical expert or dietitian. So <laughs> somehow society has allowed the knowledge hierarchy to be flipped upside down. Yeah. But what we're saying to you now is don't fall for testimonials and friends and parents and coaches. Rather go and see someone who's a, a qualified medical person. That might be your coach, actually. A lot of coaches these days are physiologists. Yeah. Because there might be a vitamin D deficiency, there might be a, right. in a, some sort of deficiency that you might need Correct. to address. Yeah. They might recognize in you that you're yeah. a vegan, yeah. uh, that you eat a heavily restricted diet in terms of certain nutrient groups, and therefore you are susceptible to low protein intake or low quality protein. Because we haven't even touched on that, is the, mm. the quality of proteins you get from different food groups and, and dietary styles or types varies. And so you might then actually need a branched-chain amino acid supplement if your diet doesn't provide that specific group of them. There, there are essential and non-essential amino acids. And so there's nuance to that decision, even when it's apparently a basic one. 
But but the, the, the recommendation, so the American College of Sports Medicine and all the organizations that oversee this conclude, and I'm reading from their uh, consensus paper, proper nutrition and changes in the athlete's habitual diet should be considered first when improved performance is the goal. Another paper yeah. will conclude, these organizations recommend appropriate selections of foods and fluids. They say that intakes can generally be met through diet alone without the use of supplements. So that's what an expert is bringing to you, that paradigm. If they're a good one, they'll also understand that there's a little bit of nuance. They need to understand your circumstances, your context, your environment, your lifestyle, your preferences, and maybe work towards a, a compromise position. But yes, so yeah. long answer, but I'm 100% in agreement. Training and diet, get those right. Yeah. And then if you still feel that there are extenuating or exceptional circumstances, then look at a supplement. But do so with a risk awareness that yeah. you may not have had before you listen to this podcast. I know a number of times you've said in the podcast, you know, we need to be, when you're in, in, in any kind of sporting activity and if you take it relatively seriously, you know, become a little, your own little sports scientist, investigate, be cynical, criti be critical of the stuff that you Correct. that you ingest and, and, and look at the labels. Although right. in this case, looking at the labels is not that easy to understand in total. No, so look at the labels in conjunction with yeah. someone else. Uh, look at the labels using a, a third-party resource like Informed Sport. Yeah, and then and then it comes again. It's upside downside. If you if you know that there's no upside and there might be a downside, you'd be an idiot to try. Yeah, because the the best case is bad, <laughs> stupid, yeah. right? Yeah. If you don't know the upside and the downside, it's potential on both sides of the equation, and you can minimize those risks through the steps that we've told you about then what you can do is an experiment of one yeah. where you gradually introduce the supplement, where you try it out in a low dose. You are hyper aware of side effects. You are super in tune with your body. You keep Maybe you keep a diary that mm. documents. If it's a, again, I would never ever suggest fat burning under any circumstance because the risk is always going to outweigh the upside. <laughs> But if yeah. it's a protein supplement, keep a, keep a diary. Weigh yourself twice a week. Keep a record. Do you feel bloated? What's your appetite doing? How's your diet? How's your training? And, so on. and be aware. Yeah. But, but again, front of mind should be downside. And then if you can't see any downsides and you start thinking, actually, I am training well. I feel recovered better after my hard session on a Tuesday evening. I wake up feeling revitalized. Now you've actually figured out that this is working for you. It might be a placebo effect, but that doesn't matter because there's no risk. Yeah. So then you keep going. Yeah. What you shouldn't do is take three supplements at the same time because <laughs> then you'll never know which one worked and now you've actually wedded yourself to all three forever, which is also not good science. Mm -hmm. So be systematic, be aware, document, assess, decide. Great advice, Professor Ross Tucker, talking to us about supplements today. And I hope that you can take a few nuggets of information and make good decisions about your, your supplementation and your nutrition, whether you are a professional sportsman or somebody who's just relatively serious or just a coach for somebody who's out there performing at his best. Um, don't forget, you can also support us at our Patreon site. You can look at us at The Real Science of Sport on Patreon. And uh, a big thank you to our Patreon supporters. Uh, we've had a few more people uh, this week already. And... Uh, we're hoping to, over the next couple of weeks, bring you a lot more podcasts. Um, they'll be specific, some of them just going to our Patreon members ahead of time. And uh, we look forward to supporting them. But thank you to all of our Patreon members. It is lovely to have you guys along. And it really makes our job a little bit 
um, it gives us a reason to go out there and do a few more podcasts. So um, thank you for your support. And we'll be back uh, soon for our next podcast. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. 